I think we have um I like this pairing. I thought it was uh, a really cool one. Yeah. Very, it's, I love it. Yeah. For for those of you, I, I guess it when they see us say this, they will have seen like the intro already. But we're doing Nas's Ultra Black. That's from King's Disease. Which one? One. It's from First. one. Okay. It's from KD One and um Brown Sugar by the Rolling Stones. Um which has always this this is my confession for the evening or one of th- this pairing's going to um going to create lots of confessions probably but the the one that I'm going to start with is that brown sugar has always been one of my favorite rolling stone songs like I love I mean I love lots of rolling stone songs but I've always loved this one particularly but Tonight, when I was preparing for this episode, is the first time I sat down and read the lyrics to it. The first time. Um, and what do you love about the song? Then, what did you love about the song? The, the groove, man. The groove. This is one of the best grooves of any Rolling Stone song um, okay. to me. Um, it just and it's one of my notes is there. It, it feels like it could be a James Brown song. Like it's that kind of. It's got that kind of groove to it. Um, and we'll talk more about that later, but like it's the verses are viewed through our 2022 lens are pretty problematic. Um, you know, that's the, the you know, the thing about it is I don't think that they are, but tell me about that. Well, I mean, we can talk about that, but I mean, I want you to finish what you were saying. That, that was the whole thought. I mean, there are there are more parts of that because I think, I mean, what I was going to say, I guess we can start here is. My impression is that Mick Jagger means them as a compliment. Um, I don't think we hear them in 2022 as a compliment, but I do think he means them in a 1960s British man's way. Like, I mean, he famously would have sex with anyone. Like, that's that's a, that's a Mick Jagger, like, part of his legend. Um, so I think he means it... Um, for those of you who don't know the lyrics, I mean, there are lots of things in there about um, I bet your mama was a tent show queen, like a prostitute or a like a burlesque show, I guess, as you would, you would say. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. And then there's the hook is brown sugar. Why? You, how come you taste so good? Like, I mean, he's obviously talking about uh, sexual relations with somebody with darker skin than him. But Gold Coast slave ship bound for cotton fields, sold in the market down in New Orleans, scarred old slaver knows he's doing all right here and whipped the women just around midnight. Like that's, it's, it's, there's some of that going on, but there's a, he, he also alternates in the chorus, just like, um, how come you taste so, so good, just like a black girl should and just like a young girl should. So there's some of the age thing too in here. Um, so there's lots of things that if you wanted to, dig into the problematic nature of some of these lyrics. There's a lot of fodder for you, I think. What if I told you I thought most of the fodder was misstated and this is more, um, this is quite frankly uh, for a group who's, um, although infectious grooves and, and melodies are rather simplistic and repetitive, Mm-hmm. This is one of their more challenging and more lyrical songs. Yeah. 
because of the format and the metaphorical um god i guess is it metaphorical allegories can that be is that like is yeah that allegory is a kind of metaphor yeah right so so yes yeah, so these so the allegory that's being presented here as a whole mm -hmm. i guess is one that has many double entendres in it. And so I say that to submit to you is, is that although I hear in 2022 what would cause a problem and a stir about it, mm. and we'll talk about those things, what I mostly hear is, is that it's twofold. First of all, on the side of things of it being 2020 and beyond, well, most people are stupid and you can't say shit anymore. And I'm just going to say it just like that because it's mm. true. Now, on the back end of that, I happen to be intelligent and artistically and creatively inclined. And so I'm going to look at it through a multitude of lenses. And when I look at it through the multitudes of the lenses, although some of the rhetoric is problematic, as somebody who knows some of the things that I know, it's like, oh, well, we could be talking about cooking heroin, too. And yes, it's no, 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 definitely. And that's what I mean. Could definitely be talking about um, having sex with a woman, uh, a, a black woman or definitely um, talking about abusing a drug. But to, um, to try to just, um, I guess, classify it, because mm -hmm. they're a white male group and a British white male group, you know, to just try to kind of box this in as some sort of a colonizing behavior mm -hmm. musically is, I think, a little trite. Okay. And um, given the band members uh personal preferences because of not having any right you know just if you know some of these things so what i really hear more than anything is actually one of the more well-written songs actually like you yeah. like the groove i actually yeah. think this one of the few songs that they got depth and i thought enough about it that i actually went and took some notes and did some serious research about this song today okay cool yeah. So I wanted to kind of pull up my notes. If, Do that. If I may. Sure. That's why I was asking if you could still see me because I wanted to yeah. pull up my notes. This is obviously, first of all, just on its uh, face value. It's a song about the transatlantic slave trade mm. and rape and the psychological ramifications and quite frankly, the, the sadistic nature of slave masters mm -hmm. uh, psychologically and sexually towards people who were being held captive by them. Yeah. So that's on its face value. Now, it has been said that the inspiration from this song came from a woman by the name of Claudia Lanier. Have you ever heard of Claudia Lanier? Mm -hmm. No. Claudia Lanier is one of the Ikeettes from Ike and Tina Turner's band. <laughs> I do know them, obviously. Now, the Rolling Stones and the I Ike and Tina Turner toured together in 1969, which is coincidentally enough when this song got written, made, recorded. Mm-hmm. It was released in 1971 on Sticky Fingers, but yeah. Now, I'm going to get to that in a second because I have notes about that as well. Yeah, for sure. Now, are you familiar with the David Bowie song, Lady Grinning Soul? Was it called? Lady Grinning Soul. No. David Bowie wrote a song called Lady Grinning Soul, and that song is about Claudia Lanier as well. So when this episode is over... I'm going to go research Claudia Lanier because yeah, for sure. It I, when you started this, uh, I, I'm going to take back a little bit of what I said about James Brown. This sounds like a Tina Turner song, like it's got that kind of drive to it too. Yes. So, and this is what I mean. Well, 
I don't know who the hell Claudia is or was, Andrew, but I <laughs> affect David Bowie mm -hmm. and Mick Jagger and get them to write songs about you. Oh, that ain't got nothing to do with the color of your skin. That's just no. buying like, shit. You feel what I'm saying, yep. Andrew? For sure. For sure. Feeling what I'm saying. Now, also, too, and this is what I mean about giving Mick Jagger some credence. Now, also, too, um, Mick Jagger um, had a relationship with a lady named Marsha Hunt. Mm -hmm. Mick Jagger had a relationship with lots and lots of ladies, but yes, yes. Absolutely. This, 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 this relationship was hidden for mm. a time, but uh, resulted in a daughter named Karis. Marsha Hunt is a um, woman of color. Okay, so that you know, I, I was not familiar with that piece of information, but I am zero percent surprised. Right. So I find it very, very hard to believe that the man who wrote this lyric that is literally conceiving a child of color is yeah. coming from a colonizing perspective. No. You know. I, I, I really truly do think he means it as a celebration. I do. I don't know if he means it as a celebration. I think he means it as an explanation. Okay. And that I, makes sense. And I think because the source is coming from, quite frankly, um, a privileged well to do white male, that's the mm -hmm. part of it that doesn't sit well. Because yeah. if you juxtapose it to the other song that we're covering, oh, well, when, well Nas talks about these things all the time and we love him mm -hmm. for it. <laughs> yeah, that was one of my notes, actually. Would this would this song be as problematic if it was a James Brown song? Like if James Brown was singing these words, would it be a problem? Fuck no, James Brown. Exactly, right. Dude, exactly. Like, fuck, not even not even not even in a second. We'd right. be like fuck, fuck the power. Right. <laughs> so, you know, and this is what I mean. So and this is, you know, this is why I like the Rolling Stones, too. Mm -hmm. Well, Mick's letting you know that it's down when they're talking about the whipping mm -hmm. and sugar, like, well, you know, you whip heroin when you cook it in the spoon, mm. you know, like you whisk it. And okay. when it's in a spoon, it turns brown. Like, mm. you know, heroin can take on different colors. It can be like grayish or it can be black. But when it's cooked in a spoon, it turns brown. Now, you know, these motherfuckers like the party, Andrew. Oh, yeah. And Mick Jagger I is probably the most, the single most notorious partier of the, all those bands. Right. So if you're like telling me, well, Mick Jagger is talking about heroin, black women and the slave trade, I would tell you, no, no, no. He very much is talking about all those things mm -hmm. and not the negative connotation that you would be assuming on any sort of level. Yeah. The music guy, the personal uh, taste and mm -hmm. preference guy, <laughs> and yeah. the motherfucker who likes to party. Well, that guy is living on this record and yeah. that's really what's going on. And I think that's why I like it so much. It's like, well, Mick Jagger and everything that Mick really is is living on this record. He is somebody that's socially conscious and aware, even for all mm -hmm. his personal preferences and party taste. Yeah. Yeah. So this has all those things. Now, I'll tell you something else. <clears throat> this song got done in 1969, but it got released in 1971 due to a manager royalties dispute. Oh. That's why it took so long. So it wasn't even there a is a, There's a Rolling Stones thing where there's there's lots of like playlists and like greatest hits albums that are like pre-1969 or pre-1970 and then the stuff that comes after yeah right. they split them up yeah yeah now um the music business actually took a big recording and engineering jump between 69 and 1971 but this recording was so astounding that they still kept the original version mm -hmm. so the 69 version lived in 71 the original title for the track is black pussy <laughs> that is also not surprising right now, um, I believe what's it? What's his name? Jerry Wexler, I believe. Or I one think of that's those. right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thought that that was too forward of a name for Mick to be using. 
probably in 19 yeah if anybody could get away with it he probably could but like it's right now the album cover for this album that this was released on was designed by andy warhol yeah i was about to say warhol did the cover right yeah but this was the first appearance also too of the famous tongue and lips logo which is Mm. you know the rolling stones logo or the one we all most commonly associate with them right right right. so that was done by john pash who was fresh out of the art school in the royal royal college art of london you know so they kind of kept it local now here's the thing about it too now a song about the slave trade and quite frankly, about rape, the raping of, of black women, and uh, on the double entendre side, the use of heroin and the passive aggressive rock star sleeping with black women. Um, mm-hmm. Pepsi and Kahlua have used these for commercial ads. Oh yeah, it's okay. it's a it's a it's one of those songs that's everywhere. Yeah, um, they had to agree to not play this song in China in two thousand three. But ended up canceling anyway because they got sick. Although I think that they're that's not. Totally they also may have just said, no, "I'm not doing that." Sorry, yeah. like stuck it hard. And but mm-hmm. then finally in 2020 they um, took it out of their catalog set. And then Mick Jagger was asked why he pretty much said, "Well, we've been performing the song since 1970," and kind of left it right there. That pretty much said, "We're not trying to kick up no shit this late. We've gotten yeah you know, 50 years out of this record." And and also they have plenty of other good songs. Like it's not it's not like this is their one single hit that everybody's gonna be sad if they don't play. Like right. they have they, they have others. So those were the notes that I had on, on the record just from doing some research about it. Man, you man, you're teaching me things about it. That's great. I I love that. Um, no, it's it's again, it's but one of the well, it's one of the ones I've always loved, but I've right. I've never really paid attention to what he's saying. Um, the, as a as a like a follow up on one of the other things you said too, um. I assume you know this, but the people watching may not. Um, the Sticky Fingers logo or the Sticky Fingers cover, if you don't know what that is, that's like a man's like crotch, basically, like in tight jeans. Um, mm-hmm. And the the actual, <laughs> at least the vinyl album cover has the zipper actually goes up and down. Yeah, it's um, a real zipper. So that's a collector's uh, item. Yeah, it's, it's, and there's not you know, a ton of them anymore. But well, um, big, it, was, it was a big manufacturing problem. That was in my notes. Yeah. I just admit. Yeah, but yes, yeah. that, it, it, because when you're pressing the the thing, it was it was pressing the zipper into the right the actual record and and messing them up some of them. Um, but yeah, it's um it's a great song. It's a great song. Um, it's um I can see why they would stop playing it now, but um I can too. But that's what I mean. It's one of those things where it's like you know. So to to juxtapose it to the artist that we we're talking about when I'm talking to Nas's uh you know Nas's social person Taj the plug the plug's name is Taj she's telling me how you know Nas is in the in the editing process of King's Disease three is mm-hmm. you know worried about maybe some of the things that are being said and needing to take them off because of the culture time that we live in which I think is funny because you know the song that he's caught the most flack for in this uh trilogy plus magic i call it the three plus one there's the right. trilogy magic. um part of a the only thing that really caused the stir for him like i would say like you know controversy like lyric wise right was the line in here when he says you know we ultra black the opposite of doja cat who's obviously real real big now mm-hmm. and has a big, big following so there was some hoopla about that 
And, you know, he caught some flack for that, just about her following and, you know, but she's made some comments and said some things too now, you know, yeah. that prompted that. But, you know, Taj was just telling me that even the process of King's Disease 3, the editing process, he's worried about what he can say. Like, you can't say the things that you used to say. This is a guy whose first verse you hear on, you know, he tells you when he was 12, he went to hell for snuffing Jesus. Right. So he believes in the full freedom of creative license. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for you sure. know, and, and, and that's been stripped down from some of our legendary artists from the Rolling Stones to Nas, like like in terms of even how he was processing mm-hmm. the editing processes of releasing this masterful album he just dropped. So. He, he did it. He did it Um, as I put one of the lyrics in there. He did it with Hall and Oates, too. Um, and I mean, Daryl Hall is, you know, blue eyed soul white guy, but. But John Oates is also he. I looked it up because I wanted to say it correctly. He's half Italian and half Moroccan, um, but he is a darker skinned. Um, but mm-hmm. like he looks North African, like he he doesn't right right look, right. right. Um, so he's lighter. And I, I, I my my assumption is that was because most of the people that Nas cites in here as like the we're going like this or like Grace Jones and Iman, like people who are like darker darker skinned. Well, well, okay, so so I think that there is a piece of that that is intentional, mm-hmm. but okay, he is using black people who trigger certain emotions mm-hmm. about the beauty and blackness out of it. Yeah, and so because most of those what, two people I just named were models, for example. Right, but yeah. it's not that just their models. It's the way that they're revered in the black community and how it makes us sizzle. How they how they sizzle. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's you know, like, Grace Jones, you know Grace Jones and Mick Jagger are friends. Oh, oh, I can totally see that. <laughs> yeah. Totally. totally. Yeah. I don't see how they could not be, yeah. actually. Right. Or I've always felt like the Stones like Zeppelin. We talked about this earlier today. Like you can listen to Led Zeppelin and never pay attention to a single word they say because it's about the music and the vocal melody of it. And I don't, and and I, I do think the stones largely, not completely, um, but a lot of their songs are more about the groove than they are about the actual lyrics themselves. The two, the, funnily enough, the two stone songs we've covered are probably two of their most well-wrought lyrics. This one, and you can't always get what you want are, are both, near the top of their lyrical genius, I guess. Um, but a lot of them are not necessarily driven by their lyrics. How about that? Um, and, and that's one of the things that the Stones and Zeppelin have in common um, that you don't see in a lot of 60s artists. A lot of 60s and 70s are, are very lyrical. Well, I think I think they, that, that that's also kind of like a timing thing. They came along in a time... Like, you know, people forget, I'm not joking, it's like, well, we're not that far removed. Like, the Stones and the Beatles, like, right right, right before bands, like, Rolling Stones and the Beatles and, and all these other guys and the Isley Brothers on, on, on our side, like, right before these bands start forming, it's barbershop quartet and doo mm-hmm. And, like, Frank Sinatra-ass style stool yeah. and a cigarette-ass singing. Like, I mean, for real, Yeah, right? no, it is. That's, that's no... So, no so... Flip from like 1955 to like 1965 is probably like the biggest flip in the history of music. You know yeah. what I'm saying? In terms of how much genres take leaps and bounds and steps in terms of like what the artists actually become, they're part of that. And so mm-hmm. they have elements of the past 
with me. Does that make sense? A little bit, yeah. What do you mean by elements of the past? Like, are they coming through in the music? Like, like a barbershop quartet and like those styles of making music. Mm-hmm. Well, your melody and your presence was everything. The, the lyrics, not so much. Like, right. you needed to be a star, uh, Mick Jagger. You mm-hmm. needed to be able to sing melodies. You feel what I'm yeah. saying? So lyrics weren't at the forefront of what they really came up on. It was yeah. about having a good front man who the ladies like yeah. and being able to harmonize and be melodic. Music and you and you see that with James Brown and you see that with Stevie Wonder and you see that right. with Ike and Tina Turner and you see that with the Isleys and you see that with you see that in all of them too. Um right. no, the, that's, what that's I'm... about the the melody. And you see it through like all the way back through the the ancestors of rock and roll, your chubby checkers <laughs> and your those guys, Buddy Hollies and those guys. Like like nineteen fifty eight, the Isley brothers are doing shut. You know you make me wanna shut. Kick my hands up and shout, throw my head up and shout. You know what I'm saying? And then doing twist and shout too, yeah. Right. But by 1972, they're doing stuff like footsteps in the dark. They're doing Mm. whole metaphorical, like. Whole different deal, yeah. You know, because, well, they don't come from that, but they realize in order to survive, like, and adapt. And, you know, that's what the Mm. best do, survive and adapt. So it's like, no, they exist in both realms. And because of that, they, um, quite frankly, they're. Mm. That's why this era of music is so important for the black and the white side. Well, the fucking music just sounds better. It's so good. It's so good because, well, I mean, listen to what I'm about to say. Well, these motherfuckers had to be good to survive. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like they had to be, especially for these groups that came from this era that had to transition and watch people like the Beatles and the Isley Brothers songwriting rise, start taking things to different levels. It's the survival and adaptability of it that made everybody sharper. It's an iron sharpening yeah. iron type of thing. You also have now 50 or 60 years worth of culling too. Like And here's what you have too. Well, you have you have people who know how to do the simplistic well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes. And, so even when the lyrics get more complex, they know how to write it more beautifully mm-hmm. than the person that I don't want to say it comes off like some people try too hard, mm-hmm. but there's an effortless to certain types of music. And the Rolling yeah. Stones have, it yeah. feels like it. I mean, and they made a hook out of brown sugar. Or how come you taste so good? And yeah. then they have that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Woo part at the end too. Right. Like it's, it's yeah. just, they have, they're, they're one of the, the sing-alongingest bands that you can possibly have, right? I mean, they're they're one of the the best possible ones there. And like I just told you at the beginning of this segment, like I have listened to this song for 30 years probably, um, and and grooved to it and danced to it and jammed to it and drove down the road with my window open listening to it and have never not once known what he was saying in the verses. Like, I mean, I mean Mick obviously does not have the clearest probably on purpose, like doesn't have the clearest mm-hmm. um, enunciations on his, his lyrics, but it's... I had to listen to this in headphones because like just listening to it out in audible speakers because of the age of it too. It was like, mm-hmm. oh no, 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 I'll hear it here. Let me go yeah. listen to this. I think it's a special record. I do. Like mm-hmm. I, that one and the whole Sticky Fingers one. We'll, we'll have to get into some of the other songs on there too later on, but it's, it, it's one of those, the, those records that they released 
in like 70, 71, 70, like those era. That's, I think, Exile on Main Street, which is a double album. That's Sticky Fingers. That's Let It Bleed, which is the one that you come, you get, you can't always get what you want. Um, and I think Gimme Shelter is on that one too. Um, I, I do not know my Rolling Stones discography as well as I know the Beatles ones for sure, but they went on a run like in that late very end of the 60s very early 1970s that is one of the the great ones great album runs too and and that's parallel with stevie wonder and parallel with led zeppelin like a lot of bands had or artists had some really really great runs right at that point so that that's what i mean about the iron and sharpening the iron Mm. you know i mean it's like you know, think about somebody like the Rolling Stones in 1959 being on tour with Ike and Tina Turner in 1959, not 59, 69. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. No, different. And they would have like, learned a lot by watching them, too. Like Right. But Wild Horses and Brown Sugar got recorded in the same weekend. Let's see the same. That's, we we will do. Uh, we. I've told you, I, th- we, I think we should do a, I, I know, I don't know if you want to get into any R&B stuff at all, but I think we should do Voyage to Atlantis, Goes with Wild Horses. And yeah, I, th- I think that, that. And you got to move. So all three of those songs pretty much came out of like the same kind of weekend recording session, which is it's absurd. I'd, I'd forgotten. I, th- I think I knew apocryphally like way back in my brain somewhere that they had toured with Ike and Tina. But yeah. that's, that comparison that style that i mean those do fit together there's a lot there's a lot of stone songs that are come from about that time period that sound like they could have been ike and tina turner songs so they were learning from them as well in in that um in that soup so to speak right well, yeah, so they recorded this in Sheffield, Alabama in a three-day period from December 2nd until the 4th in 1969. Yeah, they got some John, Alabama in it, too. Glenn Johns added the horns. Mm-hmm. And the saxophone's came, great, yeah. He added the horns, but he left uh, Jimmy Johnson's mix from Alabama the same and actually called him from England to tell him how great the mixes were. Hmm. The thing about that being like an engineer in Sheffield, Alabama, and it's like the Stones engineer is calling you from London like, Hey, this shit's fucking good. Great job. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, like that's yeah. just throwing a little saxophone solo, and we're we're good. Yeah. So, but yeah, but great song, brilliant record. Um, you know they have obviously albums full of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I I was I appreciate the conversation about how you don't feel like the song is really that problematic, just because, like. Mick is never one that I've I've never heard him catch any shit about any of that at I, all ever. I know we've talked about this before. It's one of those eye testing kind of feeling test things for mm-hmm. black people where it's like, no, nah, we kind of know when somebody's like, it's like, oh, I don't know about this motherfucker. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like when what's his name? Who's South Carolina's former governor? Lindsey um Lindsey Graham. He's a senator, but yeah. Senator, right. So when Lindsey Graham speaks, it's one of those things where it's like, eh. Mm-hmm. <sighs> oh, damn. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah, Mick don't give you those type of vibes. Um, who else gives off that? I'm trying, I hate to say it, I'm trying to think of a musician who kind of gives off those types of vibes. Um, I think I think you would, You you. there are country musicians that do. 
um, that um, I, I would think that you would probably argue that the members of Leonard Skinner do. Yeah, I was thinking Conway Twitty. I don't know him personally like that, so I don't, I don't like know his personal history. So, but I'm I'm not arguing with you. I just don't know. Right, um, but that's what I mean. It's just one of those things from the feel and from the vibe. And, you know, and like for example, Johnny Cash, you don't get that vibe from, even though he comes through right. it like the comes through right. in the 1950s. And he, and he comes off like a country ass white boy too, but he doesn't he come off right. <laughs> but, but he doesn't come off like that. There's a, it's like a comfort thing where it's like mm. being around this person makes me uncomfortable and I don't right. know why. And usually when a black person is around a white person and the black person feels uncomfortable and they don't know why, the why is usually somewhere rooted mm. in that. And that's what that I'm makes saying. Sense. Mick Jagger's never gave off those type of vibes mm. to, uh, no. you know. I mean, like, I can't say no because I don't know, because, but like he doesn't strike me it. as somebody. I'll who, give you an example of somebody else who's like British who doesn't give off those vibes. George Michael. Yeah, you feel what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. it's like no, you kind of know, you kind of know. Yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> this song is beautiful to me because it's really unap- unapologetically black. He even mm-hmm. um, one of the things you know, Nas is kind of like you know a, a, a writer's writer, and you know we've talked about that uh, from the context of you know how he approaches things. Mm-hmm. But. <clears throat> What he really is stressing in this um, song is that even if we are flawed in some of our blackness, we're still black and we're still beautiful. It's going to be okay. I'll give you the prime example of that, where he goes, we going ultra black. My pants pose to sad. You know, mm-hmm. he's taking even the things that are negative connotations about our culture and kind of wrapping his arms around it and saying, no, nah, that's okay, too. That's just part of your blackness. It's going to mm-hmm. be all right, you know? Yeah. And so even the negative, he's turning it into a positive. It's actually a very, very uh, beautiful message. It's an understated record. Um, even though it's only been two years, the staying power of the record is already there and evident. Mm-hmm. And this is the first Hit Boy and Nas pairing. So we can actually thank this song for the run. Yeah, it feels like it fits with the other ones that I know from later. Yeah. But this is the start off. This is the jump off of the, you know, quite frankly, like, I mean, definitely as far as the MC is concerned, the greatest late run the MC has ever had. This mm-hmm. is kind of start song too. And so, you know, and, and this is what I mean, like, you know, lyrics and great lyricism. And this is somebody who obviously is lauded as uh, our foremost lyricist or one right. of, if the foremost lyricist. Mm-hmm. Is it that you know, sometimes to get the point across, you don't have to, uh, you know, overstate your purpose. You just got to give people the food they need. So this song is full of like the food that black people need. Okay. We like, like, think about the double meaning when he's saying we don't fold or crack. Yeah. You know, he's he's making kind of like a little tongue in cheek about how black don't crack. We don't fold or crack. It and feels like, that's one of my notes actually. I don't want to interrupt you too much, but like. Okay the it feels like this started with the black don't crack cliche and then he kind of like exploded it out into all these other yes. things um it's in it's in the music this is what i mean is is that when he's giving us the food about what we need just listen to what he's saying we don't fold or crack so he's saying we're not going to succumb to the pressures of the society right and we're still beautiful our skin doesn't crack because listen mm-hmm. right after that occasion 
We rose to that. Mm-hmm. Fuck going postal. Yeah. That's why he's saying we don't fold. Like we don't go postal. So he's also, so he's being tongue in cheek again, almost saying, saying fuck going postal. He's almost saying on the backside of that, that's the shit that white people do. Yeah. We uh, don't. No, that's, I absolutely got that without, without question. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. We going ultra black. That's why he says that fuck going postal, we going ultra black. Like instead of expressing our anger and our frustrations with this uh, systemic and institutionally racist society this way, we're just going to go ultra black. Mm-hmm. Listen to what he says. Watching the global change hop in the coldest range. That's that. That's as black as it gets because we will sit up there and talk about all the problems that are wrong sometimes and then mm-hmm. we will go contribute to them immediately. Like think about what he's saying. Watching the global global change Hop in the coldest range. Now, everybody knows ranges aren't good for the air and not efficient for the economy, fuel-wise or anything. You get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It's literally one of the most toxic and inefficient cars. So he's talking about the global climate change, and then Mm -hmm. he goes, hop in the coldest range. (laughs) Yeah. And he's also using the word cold with it, too, right? Like Hot with cold. Right. You have the the writer is obviously Mm -hmm. still existing on here. And then... He does what I like to scold the old school hip hop thing because it's kind of has an old school hip hop feel. Mm-hmm. Hit boy on the beat. This shit's supposed to slap. That's like shouting out the DJ, mm-hmm. you know, yep. which also a black thing. That's what I mean. He's hitting certain points and yeah. it's meant to trigger you. Rhythm and blues, pop, rock, the soul, the jazz to my toes and tags. How I look being told I'm not supposed to brag. Now, I'm going to tell you something like for me, this is what I mean. He's striking triggers and he's striking chords as a black man. I've always been told that I was arrogant and that I was cocky, but I know a lot of white men like me, Andrew, and they get called ambitious yep. and, um, and go-getters and self-starters, yep. but I'm arrogant and I'm cocky, you know? Mm-hmm. And so when he says that, this is what I mean, though, he's triggering a lot of different things for a lot of people. Well, that's my trigger on the song is when he says that, you know, and he's giving you enough like black moments and black literary devices that there's almost like a trigger somewhere for for, for the black experience in here everywhere. And that's what's beautiful about their record. Everybody probably has a part of this record if they mm-hmm. listen to it. And that's the part that they relate to. And yeah. Women and the models being mentioned are part of that effect to let the women know that they're not out of the trigger, you know, yeah. race in tone, but multi that, you know, mm-hmm. except where I'm from, except where I'm at and don't fight me on it. Emotional stares like I might be wanted. So he's still speaking mm-hmm. about the injustices that are going on. Emotional mm-hmm. stares like I might be wanted. Pitch black like the night I'm ultra black. Sanford and Sons reruns jokes are black. Yes, they are. Like you see how you laugh. Mm-hmm. The trigger. That's what I'm talking about. What this record. Like, does. like even somebody who looks like me. Has, there's moments in there that I kind of laugh at too. The rhythm right. and blues, pop rock, to soul to jazz. I mean, all of those are originally black music too, right? Like, I mean, which is obviously his point. But like, it's right. it, it's just yeah. There's moments like that that even even touch my experience too. Right. And, and and it's meant to. Listen, so he's saying we going ultra black like the Essence Fest. Talk with a mask <laughs> on, the freshest breath. African black, so caress the flesh. Super fly, the Mac, sit and fly in the lap. He went from Africa to pimps and players in mm-hmm. two bars. Yep. All part of the black diaspora and experience here for black Americans, though. 
That's what I mean. Is no, yeah. he's touching everything. He's pretty much saying, if you're one of these boule bougie black people, no, 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 we're going ultra black for you. But if you one of these player ass niggas that just like super fly in the Mac and chilling in the Cadillac, we're going ultra black for you too. Mm-hmm. Nobody's out of this ultra blackness. It's an all inclusive song. It's a yeah. it's a black empowerment song, and I know you've heard me talk. King's Disease Three yeah. is a black empowerment album. But the black empowerment been going on with Nas like before yeah. the King's Disease series, and ultra black is just further evidence of it. Mm. You know, super, super fly is another one of those moments for me. I love Curtis Mayfield. He's one of my like. I love that's that's some good stuff right there. Well, you, well have you seen the movie? I have. Yeah. yeah. Right. So he's I, mean, I, I know, about, I know what he's talking about, but like, it's still like, look. no, 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 no. I get what you're saying. So listen, take the boat on the water. History talks with my daughter. My son will be my resurrection. Now, listen, he said on the world is yours. His son would be his resurrection. Hmm. His son wasn't born yet. He actually ended up having the son. And so he's kind of repeating something from one of his most notable classics and how it's come to pass. Black prophecy. Constantly learning my lessons. I never die. You get the message. I'm going to say that again. Talks on the book. Take the boat on the water. History talks with my daughter. My son will be my resurrection. Constantly learning lessons. I never die. You get the message. I live on through my seeds. You see, I'm teaching my daughter the history. Mm -hmm. She needs to know. He literally said on the world is yours. My son's life will be my resurrection, born in correction for all the wrong shit I did. He'll live in right direction. He said that in 1994 as as a 19 year old about a son who wasn't born yet. So when he's telling coming right after that and he's telling you, I'm constantly learning lessons. I never die. You get the message. That's the resurrection, right? I think that's the resurrection. But that's also the teaching of your daughter passing the information along. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, when you die, the people, you know, when you die. The people who love you most are really who help you live on. Right. You know, like that's mm-hmm. who you really live on. So he's you live telling on you through how, what you have taught them. Yeah. You lived on through what you've taught your kids and what you shared with your kids. You know, I hope you be better than I. Life's precious. Two stepping. Sometimes I over, sometimes I'm over black. I'm guilty of that. Mm. You know, he's being honest. Sometimes I'm over black. Like sometimes I take it too far. This is what I mean about triggering certain people in certain cultures. Cash money with the white tea and the soldier rag. <laughs> we going ultra black, unapologetically black. The opposite of Doja Cat. Michael Black's in black. Like he follows up the jab with a mm. joke. Yeah. That's the writer existing. Yep. Yeah. And so this record is uh, is beautiful. And one of the beautiful things about it is that you get to see that he's a brilliant writer. And not in the complicated sense of things, just in the straight up and down, like writer, writer sense of things like a Paul McCartney or a John Lennon. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there, there's the hip hop tradition all, always, as I understand it anyway, was like set up and punchline, right? I mean, you have set up mm-hmm. and that's what this is. I mean, you have set up punch and you just pointed out one like the Doja Cat and the Michael Blacks and Black, like that's a set up punchline. Um, it's, it's Except it's done in a really forward-thinking and incredibly complex way. Yeah, you know, this is <clears throat> sometimes the best messages. You know, don't have to be like um, overstated. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes the same thing we said about the Stone Song, right? Right. Same when you when you overstate it, you can overcomplicate it. It's like no, just literally listen. Say the thing. 
what he's saying. Listen to what he, just listen to what he's saying. Like like let it stand right there as it exists, and you'll kind of like hear everything that's going on. Sometimes we are our own worst enemies in this culture with just you know how we um quite frankly like jump on top of artists who just you know really want to like sing a good song to us. Mm-hmm. You know, empower some people. Like both of these songs, and why I love them is is that well they're empowering songs mm-hmm. from empowering people. Yeah. And you know, Nas has a line on um store run on King's Disease 2 where he says, Mention me with Mick Jagger and Bono like you're mm-hmm. supposed to. And so when you came with the pairing of this without me even like saying anything, I was like, Oh, well that's the mentioning you with Mick Jagger like we're supposed to be doing because yeah. that's who you belong next to. I made I made a big deal in the last episode we did about um once a man twice a child and Neil Young um about wanting to make sure that we're comparing the greats to greats like to put put him especially Nas him who is not somebody who we have discussed both on this show and on according to hip hop that doesn't perhaps get the flowers that he deserves um generally speaking in the culture um well, no, he's, he, you see, and that's the thing. Okay, so I even want to kind of like, like, like circle around on that properly. It's like, well, he gets flowers. Mm-hmm. But what I'm trying to educate people in my culture on is the way that Mick Jagger gets treated. Right. Paul McCartney gets treated. David Bowie gets treated. Robert Plant, who we were talking mm-hmm. about earlier. But the way these men get treated is what I'm talking about. And that's not just applicable to Nas. I think, and I've always said this, well, Nas is a great case study and starting place and talking point about all these things because he has the most viable evidence, in my opinion, to be the greatest MC of all time. So if he suffers any uh, mishaps, travesties, Mm -hmm. pitfalls, well, that kind of opens the gamut for everybody else in my mind. And there's some proof to life to that because on the Patreon show that we had today, I've done three podcasts today. Right. I've been behind that mic a lot. Right. So mm. one of the things that, you know, today's conversation was a legacy conversation about Snoop Dogg and why don't we have Snoop Dogg in our top 10 or 20 list? Mm. And we pretty much just came to, I wouldn't even call it a conclusion, but we pretty much just had, a, you know, a epiphany and I gave a soliloquy of sorts that um, there's an East Coast bias going on. And if you just look at the music and the songs, why ain't nobody beating Snoop like best 2025 songs, including Nas. Now, Nas is the superior MC mm-hmm. in the totality of the things that Nas does make him better. But Snoop is, Snoop is a special, special guy. And I feel like even somebody who, because I have like what I would call East Coast lyrical tendencies at mm-hmm. time, sure. maybe has done Snoop a disservice in how I've ranked him. And that's what I mean about giving all of our legends their flowers and their due. It's like, hold on. And I, and, I, and I submitted this today. Well, if we love Dr. Dre so much and think Dr. Dre is the greatest producer of all time, and most of the stuff that makes us feel that way is the stuff with Snoop on it, why don't we talk about Snoop the same way we talk about you Dre? Should. You should. Or, or we made, a, uh, Mike and I made the Bill Belichick, Tom Brady analysis. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, how are we going to call Dre the best and not call you know, Snoop right. the best. But when it's Belichick and Brady, it was like, oh, well, best quarterback and best coach. They're right? both, yeah. 
they're both. And so this is what I mean about unpacking things for our legends and Nas just being a great case study and starting point because no, it's he's like, clearly not the only one, but like, right. Well, I'm on some Snoop shit right now where it's like, hold on, Snoop's top 20. And I got people on Twitter right now that's like, nah, he's 50, 35 to 50. Mm -hmm. I'm like, he wrote Doggy Style in The Chronic. Yeah. I mean, The Chronic has Dre's name on it, but it... the DMV and Snoop Dogg wrote The Chronic. And he's literally rapping on half the album. It's yeah, I was gonna say he, a lot of and all the most famous songs on there come have Snoop on it. Like that's that is affirmative. Yeah. I played deep cover today, and just so you know, it's not just the Nas thing. You know, mm -hmm. it's just like it's a how we treat our legends thing. It's like no, nah, we need to be treating Nas, Nas and Snoop and Jay, like and Rakim and like all of them. Yeah, sure. Yeah. They the Mick Jagger, Robert Plant, like, like in our community, Andrew, not by you, mm -hmm. by us, by the black media and publications, by the black caucus, by the boule, like by us, mm -hmm. like we're not supposed to need y'all to, to fucking big our legends up, like that ain't part of the deal. You all don't mm -hmm. need us to big Mick Jagger up at no. fucking all. No, Mick, right. ja Mick Jagger doesn't need anybody to do it. He's just it, he's yeah. right. I was he's a, we we call him a made man, right? Right. That's what it is when you're a made man. That's how it's supposed to be. And mm -hmm. so <clears throat> what we're trying to get people in this genre to understand is, is that, well, you know, you treat made men a little different. Like yeah. none, like when, when a made man's coming through the door and you see him across the street, you open the door when that motherfucker is across the street to yeah. let him know that you see him. You let the new artist yeah. walk up the front door and wait to open the door for them. You get what yeah. I'm saying? No, like Mick Jagger shouldn't have to do anything else artistically for the rest of his life if he doesn't want to like right. he's, he's, he's already done and, and all the people we named shouldn't like the mccartney's and paul simons and, and johnny mitchell's and, Oz's and all all of them and i'm not talking about like walking in a place and having people buy you drinks and dinner i'm talking mm -hmm. about literally like the gravitas that yeah. comes with being canonized as an all-time iconic great artist there is something that comes with it it's like yeah. And Paul McCartney's getting fucking knighted out here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For singing. Yeah. And playing the guitar. You feel me? Yeah. Yeah. It's like Nas what, can't what, get hot nine seven. Yeah, like no, no. Like I don't know. Did you have we talked about um McCartney going on James Corden or James Corden doing a like the you know who James Corden is, I assume, right? Every, and he's one of the for those of you who don't know he's one of the late night guys and he does um like the car sing-alongs where they drive around and sing the songs or whatever uh, like the i don't I you know what i'm talking about i know what you're talking about but i didn't know that there's a there's a name for them like uh but he does it with lots of famous artists right he did one in liverpool with paul mccartney the end point of that like usually in most of these things, they go like do a performance somewhere or whatever. They'll sometimes they'll like get out of the car. Like the Foo Fighters one he did, they got out in like a guitar center store and they like played on the drums and whatever. And it was awesome. But um and with McCartney, he like McCartney wrote him around Liverpool and said, Oh, this is Penny Lane. This is where we wrote the song about, uh, and that kind of thing. Um, and showed him like the house that he grew up in and all that kind of stuff. And then they went to like a pub around the corner from where he grew up. And um, 
McCartney, like this is just like a little tiny bar kind of thing. And he, he went up there and stuck his head around the curtain and like started playing. And like Paul McCartney is what, 75 ish, I think. Shit you not, it took like less than 20 minutes for the whole bar to be packed, for the street outside to be packed, for the rooftops across the street to be packed, for like it, it was like it was like that. Um Paul McCartney's in the pub. What? Yeah. What the fuck? What? I'm down. Yeah. What? The whole town. And the whole and the town came. Mm-hmm. In, right. in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. And that's the kind of thing I think you're talking about. Like it's just that, that's what the fuck it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. I'm not like I'm, <clears throat> you know, there's um I don't know how to express this other than it's like, well, you know, don't tell me that you can't do this shit. Because we've had Michael Jackson and Prince. I've watched black people do it. Mm-hmm. Janet too. I've watched black mm-hmm. people. Not like we're not capable. Yeah. Watch us do it. Stevie Wonder, like yeah. Stevie Wonder, James Brown. Mm-hmm. Watch us do it. Going crazy for James Brown. You say James Brown around my aunt Sonya right now. She'll still go crazy <laughs> right now. About to play James Brown. James Brown. Woo! Right now. Love some James Brown. Put some James Brown on. Uh, uh, she the same way about um George Clinton, Bootsy Collins, Parliament, P Funk. Oh, P Funk's no. good stuff, man. Yeah. Soon as, soon as, soon as, mm-hmm. all you got to do is say the word. So it's like, no, 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 it can be done. We just got to start transitioning and understanding, you know. For hip hop artists too, is that what yeah. you're saying? For for black artists who are deserving, it just so happens mm-hmm. we're living in a time where a lot of those artists, whether you like it or not, are hip hop artists, like. <clears throat> The rap yeah. artists from the '90s are better than the R&B artists from the '90s. Get over it. I mean, yeah, yeah. Nas, Tupac, Big, Jay Z, Snoop. Like yeah. you can't name five R&B singers that like like in the canon of their genre are bigger than those five guys are in this genre. You can't. No, R. Kelly's the only one, and he's got Nasty. problems for yeah, exactly. Usher. So, I was thinking Usher, mm-hmm. Erica Badu. I'm. I was thinking Usher's being later than that, but I guess he's not. But. He's uh, still- 90s. No, no, no. Usher's yeah. around the same time. He's just younger. Usher's first album's coming out in 1990, 91, 92. Okay, so he's way, he's way. No, no, no. 94, 94, 94. 94. So, so he's a contemporary with all these guys. Yeah, technically, just a, he's he's um he's what Michael Jackson was to uh, David mm-hmm. Ruffin and Marvin Gaye. It's like, oh no, no, that's my contemporary. It's just a little motherfucker right now. Yeah, he's just young. Yeah. Just young, but he's right here in the building with me. You know, Marvin Gaye wrote about that. Mm. About how he knew Mike was going to be a problem, like for everybody else that thought they was going to be better. Like no, Mike no. already, Mike, Mike was special that. when he was a kid. Mike had Marvin Gaye worried at Marvin Gaye's peak when he was a kid. Mm-hmm. Now I'm gonna trust Marvin Gaye's ear. Yeah, for sure. Right, like fuck what everybody else thought. Go read Marvin Gaye's bi- biography. It's like no, 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 David Ruffin, Michael Jackson. I'm like, man, this motherfucker got an ear. Mm-hmm. Those two, yeah. those two had two of the greatest voices. Oh, three of them really had two, three of the greatest voices. I think, I think he bought up like Stevie's songwriting skills and stuff. Like he was mm-hmm. honest about the people that was like, yeah, yeah. It's like Stevie is a songwriter and like ballad writer and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, Stevie Stevie Wonder is probably the like he's yeah as a songwriter oh, as a I think song, probably he's probably the best songwriter ever in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Just if we're just talking about like actual lyrics being written down if you if you were to read it out it could still make you cry yeah yeah, yeah. No, no he he and mccartney are the ones that are like the 
have the melody and the songwriting and the whatever else. Like right. those are the two guys that it's are. Well, it's, it's the ability to touch you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That matters. You have to be able to touch people. It's like I tell people like Prince is a more diverse songwriter than Stevie, but mm -hmm. he can't touch you consistently. Yeah. Like your heart strings. Yeah. Like Stevie does. That's different. That And that is a gift unto itself too, that has nothing to do with yeah. um, necessarily instrumentation or musicality or even yeah. your voice. Just one of some people got it. Yeah, I mean, yesterday, all my troubles seemed so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay, but I believe in yesterday. Like, that's not a complicated lyric, but that's like straight, mm -hmm. straight into your heart. Straight. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things. And we, we have gotten sort of off um, Ultra Black, but it's, I mean, I, I mean, they, it, it all does fit together, I guess. Well, 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 not really, because I think the thing that I've been stressing is, is that, you know, people like Nas get mentioned with the likes of the people of everybody we just mentioned. We just got done talking about Marvin Gaye, David Ruffin, Michael uh, Jackson, Michael Jackson, James Brown, Parliament. Like, no, no, no. Paul McCartney. No, that's exactly what the fuck I'm talking about, actually. That's mm -hmm. like that's the type of like when we're talking about somebody in Nas's stature. That's where the discourse is supposed to go to musically if we're stepping outside of his genre. Mm -hmm. The comp, Mick Jagger, Paul McCartney, mm -hmm. Stevie Wonder, Prince, Michael. D no, those are his musical comps outside of right. his genre. Look at him inside of his genre. He is that. And so what we actually just did, although it seems kind of sidebar, is kind of what's a little bit more necessary. Like when people are having a conversation, and I've heard older people do this, now and now I understand why when they say that they miss the real time of rock and roll that they grew up on. Well, they're talking about all this music that you've been giving them. They're talking about this Led Zeppelin time, this Rolling Stones time, mm -hmm. this Beatles time. They're talking about like that for a reason. So when we are pull when I'm pulling up and I'm talking about Nas and Snoop for a reason, I'm not pulling that from somewhere. There's a reason. It's the same mm -hmm. thing. The same thing. Yeah. 